like you have this emotion that you said at the top of the show is one of the most common emotions that we have, and yet it's not pleasant. So what's what's happening here? Why is something that is unpleasant so ubiquitous? The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. Our next guest is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including his latest, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. His other books include the New York Times bestsellers, When, and A Whole New Mind, as well as the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive, and To Sell is Human. This guest books have won multiple awards, have been translated into 42 languages, and have sold millions of copies around the world, and his TED Talk has been viewed more than 30 million times. Please welcome to the show. Mr. Daniel Pink. Mr. Dan Pink, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Jared. It's good to be with you. Something, you know, that I found really fascinating about you was, you know, a, a change that you made early on in your kind of journey, right? You came from kind of this traditional background, right? Being, you know, from a Jewish family and being a lawyer. And I think you kind of felt that pressure to, to kind of achieve in that kind of classic domain. But you went into this world that was completely uncertain you know, probably the most uncertain, right? When you think about being an author and um, a researcher. So for you, you know, going back to that kind of moment, you know, contemplating that change, you know, whether I make that leap, don't I make the leap? What was kind of going through your mind at that time? Um, that I didn't want to waste my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, um, uh, that I didn't want to be miserable day to day. Um, and that, you know, it took me, it's, I mean, I think I'm still a work in progress in that regard. It's trying to figure out what it is I was meant to do, what it is I enjoy doing, what contribution I can make to the world. And I think all of us go down, many of us go down false paths uh, in that search. And I think, unfortunately, some of us don't realize that they're on a false path. And I realized that I was not on a path that was the right path for me. And so I frobbed around and tried to figure out what the right path was. Was that a painful experience for you? Or was it something that because it can be right. It can be a really emotional experience. Or painful was that isn't the world. painful? Isn't the isn't the right word, Jared? It's it was um, uncomfortable, um, disorienting, disconcerting. But it wasn't painful, you know. In in the way that in the way that like if you feel like like if you get lost somewhere, you don't feel pain. You feel disorientation. How have you gotten more clear on that vision of who Dan Pink is? Uh, who's saying that I have? Yeah, have you? <laughs> Maybe a little bit, you know, um, I, I don't really think about that a lot day to day. I just try to do good work in the moment, honestly, and and hope that that provides the the path. I mean, there's a famous, um, you know, Eel Doctorow line about driving in the dark. You know this one? No, I don't. OK, so Eel Doctorow, the great novelist, talked about how writing, but I think to some extent living is this way as well, is like driving a car on a dark road. All right. You can only see as far as the headlights go, but you can make the whole journey that way. And I sort of inadvertently am following that, not by design, but just 
that's what I was doing. And I finally had a metaphor to describe it. <laughs> and it's a lovely metaphor. Let me give you credit. There. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? I think it's great. I wish I'd come up with it. I didn't. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll take credit for it. False attribution. It's my favorite thing in the world. Um, yeah. But one thing that, right, so much of your work has been focused on that kind of human potential, right, is um, the mastery of one's work. And I know you're living that out right now. But, you know, I'm curious if we kind of reflect back on the last decade and, you know, in terms of how that that mannerism of, of work has evolved. We're organizations, right? They're just, they're focusing more on, on those three kind of principles. Do you take a hundred percent of that credit? No, um, of course not. And I'm not sure, you know, I think that the, the move in that direction has been very slow and uncertain and fitful. And there's a great degree of variance across organizations. Of course. And I was just kidding, just to be clear, um, because I, <laughs> <laughs> I hope that came across if it didn't, you know, that's horrible. But I guess, you know, reflecting back on Drive, like I first found about you from, um, found out about you from like Russ Roberts, uh, Econ Talk. I think it was, you know, more oh, really? than a decade ago. And that's kind of where I first found out about you and then kind of went down the Dan Pink rabbit hole. But, you know, I was a big Econ Talker back in the day. And so, you know, reflecting back on that last decade over, you know, the last 12 years or whatever since it's been released, what, what's kind of surprised you about how that, that culture of work has shifted, if anything? Yeah, I mean, I think that the shift has been slow and... Um, has I it guess sped if, up, if any, say that again. Has it sped up? Do you think in the last couple of years? Maybe because of COVID. Uh, on one dimension, yeah. On uh, I think COVID might have sped it up. I don't know if sped up again. Forgive me for obsessing over like the the frame that we're we're in, but I'm not sure whether it's about speed as much as it's about perspective. Um, perspective, yeah, perspective and things like that. So let's take so 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 that what, what that book says to, for your listeners who don't. You know, the 99% of your listeners have no idea what you're talking about is this is a book that looks at about 50 years of science on motivation. And what it says is that the, the certain kinds of motivators, particularly what I call if then rewards, these contingent high stakes rewards, if you do this, then you get that. They're effective for simple tasks with short time horizons. They're way less effective for complicated, creative, conceptual things that take a longer time. And if you really want to motivate people to do those other kinds of things, you have to pay them well and then offer a sense of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And so we can unpack those three things. I, I do think that in the last 12 years, organizations, companies have actually are talking about purpose more than I would have expected. Back when I wrote that, that was sort of an, that was kind of an edge view. It really was. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's like, whoa, you, you, you have to actually talk about purpose because we have this science that says that purpose is a powerful motivator and it's actually what people want out of their jobs in many ways. And um, I was just happened to be listening to an interview with um, um, Indra Noy, the uh, former CEO of Pepsi, and she was talking about her tenure at Pepsi and how she discovered as CEO that it, these employees cared so much more about purpose than she ever imagined. And so she actually brought that to the surface in her role as CEO. So on that dimension over the last 12 years, I, I feel like purpose has become part a little bit more part of the just mainstream conversation about organizations. I really do. It's so interesting to think about a like a you know a, the Pepsi's of the world because you know we're in that startup culture where I, I think you're more nimble. You're able to kind of um, maybe adapt some more purpose in that earlier stage. But I think that's something that's really difficult to kind of manage as you scale is to yeah, purpose yeah. with a hundred thousand. Do you have any kind of learnings in terms of what crossing that kind of chasm looks like? Well, one of the things that I discovered 12 years later is that I sort of, when I wrote about purpose, on, on no joke, when I wrote about purpose, I, I didn't get it quite right. And I've come to believe that purpose is not one thing, but it's two things. 
that there are two different kinds of purpose. Uh, one of them is what I sort of very clumsily call capital P purpose, and the other is what I call lowercase, small p purpose. Capital P purpose is largely what I wrote about. So I'm coming into work because the company that I work for is helping address the climate crisis. I'm feeding the hungry. I am you know, serving the underserved. Um, and that's a very important form of purpose. And there's a lot of evidence showing that it is a powerful motivator. However, there's another kind of purpose that I call small p purpose that is not so much about big transcendent change in the world, but about simply making a contribution internally. So like helping out a customer, helping out a teammate, putting something, you know, just like sort of a smaller, quieter form of purpose. And there's evidence on that, that that's a, that's a performance enhancer too. There's a really important study out of Harvard Business School showing that if you set up iPads in a cafeteria line that allows the cooks to see the people who are eating their food, the performance goes up, all right? So that they're not feeding the unhoused. They're not feeding people who are starving. They're feeding middle-class people who are coming in for lunch. But if you allow them to see the purpose, small people, like what they're like, hey, there's a guy eating my cheese omelet. I'm not just making this cheese omelet in a vacuum here. There's a guy eating my cheese omelet. I'm going to up my cheese omelet game. So, <laughs> so, so that, so that, so that small p purpose is actually really important. And I think that to your point about scale, when you have a company like, Pepsi. again, I mean, I, I'm, I'm agnostic about Pepsi. You know, if you have a company like Pepsi, um, you know, um, that small p purpose plays a role if you have hundreds of thousands of people working there. Because all hundred thousand, I don't know how many people work at Pepsi, but say like there are a few hundred thousand around the world. It's hard for me to imagine that everybody at Pepsi is coming to work every single day saying, I'm changing the world. But I can't imagine a situation where they're saying, I'm coming to work today and I'm going to help out a customer. I'm going to help out a teammate. I'm going to you know, help out a vendor. Uh, and I think that that's much more accessible, much more at people's fingertips. Well, you're now on autonomy, which you mentioned before, um, I do think the pandemic has had a role in that, in the sense that you have this, you know, we, we, we had these arguments against remote work and against autonomy and against people working at home saying you couldn't trust people. Um, and so we can't do it. And then we had this two-year international one billion person experiment with it, and it worked fine. And so I think that's a very difficult egg to unscramble. I think that you have to, I think that, that, that organizations now need to start basically change their default setting and, and default to autonomy um, rather than what they were doing before, which is like, okay, we can't trust everybody. We can't have it autonomous, but there are some people who could eventually earn it. I think that's the, I think the, the default needs to switch now. You mentioned that you're agnostic about Pepsi. Well, I'm I'm actually a pretty dedicated Pepsitarian. Um, I don't know okay. if you've heard of that. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like I like Pepsi. I don't I don't have strong feelings between Pepsi and Pepsi and Coke. I'm you know it's like I'm not a a hater of either one. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Um, but when you talk about that, you know, getting back to the heart here is talking about that small P purpose, right? Showing, I think, in some way, folks, you know, employees, how they're actually making a contribution on a daily basis. You know, is, do you think that's something that the organization can control and, and you know, dedicate themselves to distilling that throughout the organization? Or is that more of an individual? I think it's both. It's a good question. I think it's both. Um, I don't think it's anything that an organization can control per se. I think it's something that an organization can enhance. I think it's something that an organization can help people see. But I do put part of the onus on the individual, him or herself. 
that's a really wonderful segue into our next topic on regret, because, you know, talk about the self, right? Um, it is the most common negative emotion, as, as you've kind of shed a light on in your book. And, you know, something that you recommended in the book is creating what's called like a failure resume. So that's, you know, listing out your failures, understanding, you know, why it happened, what you could do in the future to kind of stop it from happening, happening and, and, you know, understanding the value that you care about in that circumstance. Regret shows you which values you care about. And so what I'd kind of like to do is, is in a benign way is kind of give you, you know, some of the regrets, the most benign regrets, sadly. Um, and maybe what we can do is just use these as kind of illustrations for sure. the, the bigger topic. And so, you know, for me, what I did after high school, you know, went to business school and I don't know if it was maybe a lack of skills. It was a lack of understanding. You know, it was a lack of drive, definitely. To and, and a lack of purpose, of course, as well. So I, you know, I started out. I did horribly. I did, you know, my first, you know, linear math uh, midterm. I got twenty six percent on it, right? And I, I really regret not having a clear direction coming out and putting the work in and dedicating myself because I feel like I would be in a different place than I am now. I, I guess, you know, thinking about those kind of four main categories of regret. What what regret am I describing there? I mean, that's in me sounds like a foundation regret. You didn't know this was going to be a quiz. No, I didn't. I mean, it, it sounds like a foundation regret, which are these regrets of small decisions we make early that accumulate to bad consequences later on. So it's things like what you're talking about, which is not working hard enough in school or university. Um, Summers abroad. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, uh, uh, like, I think the biggest category, the biggest subcategory in this are, are people who spend too much and save too little. Um, it's a lot of health related regrets as well. So um, so that's what it that's what it that's that's what it seems like. So I think there's two ways to process that regret. And I'm Canadian, so I say process, sorry. And I also say sorry to the <laughs> Canadian. So <laughs> don't hold it against me. But I think there's two types of people and, and how they kind of interpret those regrets. And you, you know, you paint that picture as, you know, that first type of person, they feel the regret and they feel the pain. And instead of feeling it, you know, embracing it, understanding it, they cover it up, whether it's moving past it, whether it's doing something unhealthy, right? Alcohol, sugar, whatever it is. But the second type of person, and I think the person that you're advocating for us to become is they're feeling that exact same way, but they just take a very different action, right? They reflect on that. They write it down. Right. They understand why they feel badly about that regret. Um, and then they learn that lesson for the future. And so this will just be a small section of, of a broader conversation, but, you know, recommendations, what, what recommendations do you have for folks who are, you know, wanting to learn from like that foundation regret of, look, in the past, I had this experience where I got 26%, I didn't dedicate myself and I regret that. How can somebody handle that moving forward? Well, the one thing, so there, there, I think there are three sort of, there are three core steps. The first one is to actually treat yourself with, don't treat yourself with contempt in the face of that. There are people, myself included, who would look at that and say, oh my God, you're such a fucking idiot. What the fuck is wrong with you? Okay. Don't do that. Um, there's no, there's no evidence that that kind of self-criticism is effective. Um, but, but also what's not effective is saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Just always, that's, that's a bad idea too. What you want to do is you want to treat yourself with some compassion, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that, that, that kind of misstep that you're talking about. How old were you, Jared, at the time? You're 18, 18 years old. Yeah. You're 18 and you know years what, old. Man, it takes us a while to develop. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> it's a moment. It's a mo very true. It's a moment in your life. It's not the full measure of your life. And so I think that way of reframing it is the is an important first step. The second thing is to do what you just did, which is talk about it, make sense of it. Um, one of the things that we see with disclosure is that disclosure is an unburdening. So if you were carrying that around, you were carrying around the stigma of that uh, 26, you know, um, and you felt ashamed of that, you felt terrible about that. That's not healthy. What you want to do is talk about it, make sense of it. Um, and um, 
when, and then you have to then you have to extract a lesson from it. And this is really the important thing. So we're going to reframe inward and treat ourselves differently, treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. We're going to express outward. We're going to use language to make sense of it rather than harbor that negative feeling. We're going to unburden ourselves of it. We're going to transmute that negative blobby amorphous feeling into concrete words. But then we're going to draw a lesson from it. And this is the most important thing. Now, chances are that you're probably, what was it? What was the class? Linear algebra? Good memory. Linear, yeah. So, which isn't that hard. Um, you're right. So, <laughs> a chimpanzee could do it. <laughs> so you're taking, so now I don't know whether you want to take linear algebra again, but I think that to me, the lesson there is, there, let, let, let's analyze the regret. The regret is, regret clarifies what we value and instructs us how to do better. And I think what's, what the clarification there for you is not so much, the, the failure is the evidence, but it's not the underlying crime. The underlying crime is lack of effort, lack of conscientiousness, lack of diligence, all right? And so, so, so what it's telling to you is like you value putting in the work, you value putting in the effort, you value conscientiousness, you value diligence. And so that, so the question then is, that's how do you apply those values to other things that you're doing? So how do you become, how do you, how do you use those lessons of diligence to become a better podcaster? Uh, how do you use those lessons uh, of diligence to become a better salesperson? It's a wonderful insight and it hits on the broad value that I, you know, in, in going through this reflection process, what I understood about what I value is self-actualization, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs is the top is becoming the best version of yourself. And so that means putting in the effort in every environment. And so um, that is one of the big, you know, mindset shifts that I've seen is I've always reflected on my failures and tried to understand what I could do in the future to stop them. But that now tying back to values, I think in our society, we hear so much about values. What do you value? What's your character? These kind of amorphous terms. But you're, I think, laying out a process to kind of back end that understanding, to understand how do we get to values. And Yeah, although, although just to be clear, Jared, I'm using value as a verb, not as much of a noun. So the thing is, is that re regret clarifies what we value. Okay. And so that's why it sticks with us. When people tell you what they, so let's just stick with value as a verb. When people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most, what means the most to them, what matters the most to them. And so the fact that you have this regret lingering over a couple of decades suggests to me that you value effort and diligence and responsibility and putting in the work. And when you stray from that, you feel bad. And that tells you what does Jared value? It also instructs you what to do next. Which is to which is to honor those values. Now we're going to use value as a, as a noun. Which is to honor those to honor those values. To honor what it is you value by being diligent and conscientious and and dogged in your other pursuits. Just a fascinating point, um, and that was something that I missed. That was a nuance that I think went over my head. Is I think you're talking about the action, right? Is that regret should show you. What are the actions that you need to take in the future? It's and both. It tells you. It tells you what you believe. It's both. That's the power of it. But you're exactly right. That's the power of it. It's, it's a double whammy. It tells you what you value and what you should do. It clarifies what we value and instructs us on what to do. What's changed in your life? And don't feel like you need to share anything personal here. But has there been anything through this process that's changed in your life where you have taken different actions because of your research? 
I'm I, on this particular one. Yeah, I mean, on, I'm much better at. So another category that we haven't talked about is are what are called connection regrets, which are, you know, about relationships that come apart. Nobody wants to reject because they think it's going to be awkward. They think they're not going to care. So the relationship drifts apart and people feel crappy about that. Um, and so um, so foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. Connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. And and um, have you reached out? It's, I have. Yeah, that's a that's the interesting thing. It's like I, I, I actually I've never been very good at that. Uh, I've never been very good at it. And um I mean, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if being good at, I don't know if you're good at something like that, but I just never did it enough. You know what I mean? And so I've gotten much more, I'm much more willing to do that now, much more willing to do that now, having talked to all these people about their regrets and having seen what a huge regret it is among, among people. So my view right now is that if I'm deciding whether I should reach out, I've answered the question. If I get to the point where I'm wondering, the answer is clear, reach out. And has, I'm guessing it has. That's had a positive impact on totally, your life. totally, totally. I mean, again, there's a there's a form of there's a form of pluralistic I- ignorance here. Is that when we think, you know, one reason we feel awkward about reaching out, especially if it's been a few several years, is we think the other side's not going to care that they're going to somehow reject it or be indifferent to it. And but when you ask people, well, what if that person had reached out to you after all these years? Would you feel that was weird or creepy? You say, no, no, it'd be great. You know, so that's the pluralistic ignorance there. So, so always, always reach out. Um, that's one of my tattoos. I've got 26% tattooed on my back. <laughs> uh, no, no regrets. And if in doubt, reach out. Uh, the second thing, you know, so we've done connections, right? That's, that's a, the second. Um, third is, you know, so the example is that I told you I was that, you know, in that healthcare world, the administrator, and I, I was there for two years too long. Like I should have gotten out sooner. And, yeah. you know, it was that self doubt process. And, um, you know, I wished retrospectively that I'd made that jump two years prior. Who knows what would have happened? But now that I've crossed that chasm, I'm I'm thinking, why didn't I do that sooner? What do you think is the? Um, and I hate to quiz you again. What do you think is the kind of category of regret there? Oh, it's a bonus regret. I mean, if only I'd taken the chance. And that's a big. That's another big category, Jared. And and it doesn't. It's not always at at, at work. Um, it's it's everything. It's it's asking people out on dates. It's speaking up uh, against injustice. It is. Uh, going on adventures and traveling and it is, you know, changing careers, starting new businesses. Last one is, so we've got foundation, boldness, connection. And the last one is, is the moral regret. <laughs> I'm not going to give right. you my moral regret. Um, I think that comes down to goodness, right? Is, is the moral regret yeah. are, I should have done, you know, it's a, an inaction or an action. It's either I hurt somebody through my actions or I stood by while somebody got hurt. I think you gave the example of standing by while somebody got bullied. You, you know, you knew that that was happening and you didn't speak up and say something. And 40 years later, that still bothers you. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess I'd be curious, right? Because Elliot Aronson, you know, obviously famous professor, uh, he talks about the role of self-justification, right? And which really just means that once we take that action, we kind of, we justify to ourselves, like cheating on a test, mm-hmm. taking you know, standardized scores of somebody before they cheated on a test or after, um, and the cheating becomes more reasonable to that person. And so, um, do you think there's any circumstances like, you know, where, where that person cheats on, on a test and then justifies to themselves why that was okay, where we can actually retrospectively diminish regret instead of in some ways, like your bullying example, where, um, you know, I stood by and watched somebody get bullied where that regret almost amplifies over time. Is there anything there? Interesting question. I'm 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 not sure. I mean, certainly people do certainly people do justify cheating and misbehavior. Um, 
And I, but there might be limits to how long they can delude themselves. One of the things that's interesting to me about the moral regrets that I collected from, you know, what we now have over 20,000 regrets from all over the world is how long ago many of the moral regrets were, the underlying offense, how long ago that was. So it, so it suggests that maybe in the immediate aftermath, there was some self-justification, but that self-justification had a short half-life and eventually extinguished, and now they regret it. It's a guess. Yeah, well, I, that's what I live my life on is guesses. So who needs research when you can guess? <laughs> yeah. And one thing that I've noticed about regret is, is you know, kind of zooming out and, and taking a bit of a more broad perspective is, you know, using regret across that human lifespan and, and those four main types of, of regret. And the Harvard Grant study, you know, most folks will know that, right, is, is studying, you know, I can't remember what the exact number, but 500 um, Bostonians over a 75-year yeah, yeah. period of time, right, to understand what was the most important component of a, of, a, of a life well lived. And what they found is, you know, relationships are the number one most impactor, important factor in, you know, human health and happiness and fulfillment. And so I think through that and through kind of regret, we can almost backend our way into what a good life looks like. Do you think that... Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is a method for using those four main categories of regret in order to preempt what a good life is? Yes, I do. I think it's, you know, and I think that like, again, let's start, let's, let's take a step back and, and start from first principles. When people tell you what they regret the most, they tell you what they value the most. And across these 20,000 responses, people said there are four things that we, that I, that we, they regret the most, not doing the work, uh, not taking the chance not doing the right thing and not reaching out. And so what, what that suggests is that people value, as you were saying earlier, Jared, they value stability, they value uh, growth and learning, they value goodness and they value love. And so those are the components of a good life. And so as we anticipate, as we try to chart our lives, those give us, I think, a, a huge amount of guidance. And when we anticipate our future regrets, it seems pretty clear that that's what we're gonna regret. 10 years from now, 20 years from now. So you can take steps today to avoid those regrets in a decade or two decades or three decades. But what we shouldn't be doing is wasting our time figuring out, you know, sort of trying to reduce our regrets on mundane things. Like, yes. you know, should I have worn my white running t-shirt today or my gray <laughs> running t-shirt today? You know, you know so, so I do think that those give us a sense of where we can focus our attention. They operate, they, ha they have, I think, a kind of a navigational effect they give us, they allow us to set our, to set our sights on, on those things and actually just chill out about everything else. How much do you think regret can optimize our decision-making as we think about those important decisions or even... A lot, if we do it right. I mean, I, I think that regret can optimize our current decisions. Anticipating our future regrets can optimize our current decisions if we do it right. Okay. So we, so what we should be doing is anticipating those four core regrets and actually not worrying about anticipating other regrets and actually doing something that is very hard for some people to do, myself included, which is to do what social psychologists call satisficing, which is basically just good enough is good enough. So, you know, um, let's say that I have to have um, uh, the, the roof replaced in my house. I can say, I'm going to have the best roofer in the Washington metropolitan area. Um, you know what? And I might be fine with the second best roofer because it's not a big problem and roofs aren't that complicated, you know? Um, you know, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? So I say to my, you know, my wife and I say, oh, let's go have Thai food. All right. 
We're going to find the best Thai food restaurant in Washington. You know, you'll go crazy on that. Um, so what you should be doing is satisficing on a lot of things, a lot more than I think a lot of us do, and maximizing on these four these four things. And, and what I find is that some people do the exact opposite. They maximize on on um, on getting their roofer, and they they satisfy on their relationships. That's a recipe for a a life not well lived. Where do you think that comes from? If it is so prevalent, is that a societal about what which over maximizing and everything, or uh, uh, focusing more on maximizing than on these core regrets? Um, I, I I don't know. I think it because you know people 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 don't know, um, and and you know at some level choosing a roofer is easier than figuring out what relationships are meaningful in your life. That could be part of it. it for you, what what do you think has been the most you know, important takeaway in terms of your study on regret. What was either the most surprising or the, the, the piece that has made the largest impact on how you actually live in, in this world? Well, well, I mean, as I said before, the connection regrets were the thing that really changed my own behavior and that I'm reaching out a lot more than I ever did, truly. Um, in terms of sort of like the broader conceptual side of it, I think what surprised me the most was you know, again, in gathering these regrets all over the world, and then also doing another project where I did a large public opinion survey of the U.S. population, um, it's, and, 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 and doing a very, very large sample to look at demographics, largely to find demographic differences. What, I, what, what surprised me is that how few demographic differences there were and how universal in the other survey these regrets were across, across countries. That there what you know there weren't a lot of differences. So I, it, so in some ways the biggest surprise was I was looking for differences and I didn't find them. I wasn't looking for universality and I found those. Did you go in expecting you were going to find differences between black totally. and white the, gender? The reason, the, the, a big reason that I did that quantitative survey, the four thousand four hundred eighty nine person sample of the U.S. population. The reason the sample was so large is so we could oversample in demographic groups and then weigh the sample so that it reflected the glorious diversity of the United States and allow us to make safe claims about demographic differences. And there weren't that many. <laughs> so what does that tell us about the evolutionary importance of regret? Um, well, I mean, that's a great point. First of all, let's, I mean, it's smart to think about that regret has an evolutionary purpose, that it's not an evolutionary defect. But it's not like, but I think it's a really smart way to look at it. It's like, like you have this emotion that you said at the top of the show is one of the most common emotions that we have, and yet it's not pleasant. So what's, what's happening here? Why is something that is unpleasant so ubiquitous? And the answer is, the first answer has to be that it must have some advantage. It must confer some evolutionary advantage. And the evolutionary advantage that it confers is that it helps us learn. It helps us grow. That is, when we feel that spirit of regret, we like, huh. Okay, I made the I made the wrong decision, or I didn't take that action, or I took the wrong action, and I feel bad about that. That's a signal. That's a lesson. That's a information. That's a data that allows us to do better next time. Have you heard in a colloquial sense that you know self-reported from from folks who have said that this information around regret and learning from regret to change their future behavior? Like I think a, a lot of us have that sense that the world is happening to us, not for us. And, and you did a, a wonderful you know, study in that sense. And so, you know, have you, have you gotten any data in terms of 
this has changed the way that I approach my life and the way that I'm I'm moving forward with either from people who've read the, from people, people who read, read the book, book and whatnot. Yeah, yeah I mean That's anecdotally, I mean I'm getting email, I, you know, I'm getting emails from readers saying that um, you know they finally talked about some big regret that they had and it was a huge unburdening and now they know what to do. So, but that's just anecdotal right now. Ending on kind of the, the you get, you've been asked every question about this book as, as can be imagined, I know. So for you, like what's one thing that you wished you had been asked about the book, about the process that, that hasn't come up yet, if anything? Huh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm, I'm surprised by um, how rarely people mention religion. Um, and, and in part, because it seems clear to me, I didn't do a good enough job in the book itself that religious traditions actually can kind of sort of equip us reasonably well to deal with some of these, um, negative emotions in general and regret in particular. Um, and that secular society might leave us adrift when it deals, when it comes to negative emotions and, and regret. Uh, so I'm surprised that people didn't mention that. Um, I'm uh, the the other thing is that I don't. I mean, I published the data, um, but one of the things that I did in the American Regret Project is I looked at whether belief in how belief in God correlated with regrets, and what I found is that there was zero correlation. <laughs> um, that's largely because everybody in America believes, not everybody, but huge numbers of, huge percentage of people in America believe in God. So there's not, there's not, um, there wasn't enough difference there. But, but I, I feel like that I'm getting fewer questions about the role of religion in regret than I would have expected, given how meaningful religion is in so many people's lives. Where do you think that comes from? Is it a bit of an aversion to talking about or? Yeah, I don't know. It's good. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, I find it I find it surprising because I mean if you look at you know again certain religious traditions first of all every really, I mean, religious traditions have ways of dealing with negative emotions I mean you think about grief every religious tradition has systematic responses to grief processes rituals things that incantations things you do in response to grief because we want people to make sense of that negative emotion understand that negative emotion process that negative emotion um, we have some secular traditions dealing with um, uh, grief, but not that many. They're mostly at least have at least a foot in religious traditions. Um, and we have essentially no secular mechanisms um, except for when we medicalize some, some of these problems um, to deal with a lot of negative emotions. And that, that's sort of trying to fill that gap there. And the, so I, I think that could be, I, I think, I, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised, given how prevalent and how important religion is in people's lives, that we haven't gotten that. So if you look at Catholicism, Catholicism has confession and repentance. All right. Judaism has a day of atonement in the calendar, you know, a, a day carved out to atone for your sins. Um, and so I, I guess I, I'm surprised at how infrequently religion has come up. So we spoke about pepsitarianism. Um Pinkitarianism, there's going to be a day of atonement, is what you're telling us. Uh, well, in, in, under the uh, under the the, the Pinkian theology, there's actually a month of atonement. Well, well, that is deep. I can't wait to be your first disciple. <laughs>
is is my point here. A month of a month of atonement. Yes. <laughs> the the and the way that we will atone is everybody will have to watch Washington D.C. sports teams for a month. There's there's really no better atonement. It, it's like yeah. being a Chicago Cubs fan pre right. 2010. On that note, Dan, thank you so much for taking this time to chat with us. You know, you're somebody who has. You know, it, this is a, a term that gets thrown around too much, but you have, you know, changed my life in, in over the last Thanks, you know, 15 years. And, and it really just has been an absolute pleasure to get to chat with you. So for the listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Dan Pink, I highly recommend everything that he does. Um, if you're interested in this conversation, particularly the power of regret, how looking backward moves us forward. Uh, another favorite is, of course, Drive, the surprising truth about what motivates us. So Dan, man, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Jared, thanks a lot. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the great, thanks for the great questions and, and uh, keen sense of humor. I, I, it, it makes it um, a lot more fun. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.